Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in fellowship, ready to study God's word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we come together this evening to study your word because we know that as we study uh, your word from Genesis through Revelation, we study all the counsel of your word and all that the Holy Spirit has revealed, that he uses that in many different ways in our own spiritual life. Some things are used to instruct us in terms of specific and direct application. Other things are used in order to shore up our confidence in your word. Other things are used in order to give us an overall perspective of your purpose, your plan, and history. Father, each time we study your word, it has a value in our spiritual life, in our thinking, that we may be strengthened to think as you would have us to think, knowing your plans, your purposes, the way you have provided for us in our salvation as well as in our spiritual life. And we pray that you would use the things that, that we're studying this evening that they would be profitable to us and that we might understand how we can use these things even today to think about the trends of the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in the last few weeks, we've been looking at this whole issue of the Antichrist coming out of Revelation 13, 1 and 2, where we see the beast, and the beast is the first beast, is the leader of the ten-nation uh, actually, it's 11 nation because he's actually the 11th horn uh, confederation that comes up during the tribulation period. Prior to that, there are many manifestations, or let's just say Antichrist wannabes, down through history. We have uh, all kinds because Satan, one reason is that because Satan doesn't have any more of an idea when the rapture is going to occur, then you or I. And so he always has to have his kingdom, his man, his system ready to go at almost a moment's notice to try to uh, move into that position where he can take control of the kingdoms of the earth. So he has to have somebody waiting in the wings to be the Antichrist. Second thing we observe is that because man in Adam gave up dominion, proper dominion over the earth, gave up his right as God's vicegerent, 
That's one of those good words somebody find, discovers every now and then. It's not vice regent. I'm not misspeaking. A vice regent is the assistant to the regent. A vice gerent is somebody who stands in place of the king. So a vice regent is, is an assistant, like a vice president. It's just, what was the statement, not worth a bucket of warm spit or something like that. It's just a secondary position, but a vice gerent is the one who's the representative, almost like an ambassador except of greater, uh, greater power and greater significance. And man's created over God's creation to be the vice gerent to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and to subdue the earth. But when Adam listened to the serpent, listened to Satan, and fell into sin, he gave up that dominion. And so Satan becomes the prince and the power of the age, the god of this age, the prince and power of the world, and he is the one who then approaches Jesus in the temptations and offers him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't question his ability to do that because he has uh, taken over. He is the... Uh, false ruler, so to speak, who empowers and energizes the nations of the world, and he uses various uh, demons who work behind the scenes, unseen, manipulating world events, influencing nations through the doctrines, uh, through the doctrines of demons. And so, always and every time, it is Satan trying to push his agenda through the kingdom, what we call the kingdom of man or the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the cosmic system. And so, often we might become a little bit, uh, a little bit deceived into thinking that, especially with the history of the United States of America, that there's somehow we don't fit into that mold. I think a lot of people have realized that that's not true, and it's never been true. The Every human kingdom, every human nation has, uh, by virtue of the fact that we live in a fallen world, is part of the cosmic system, part of Satan's system on earth. And so there's this constant battle between those who are believers, those who have the truth, and the greater uh, kingdoms of the world that are energized, empowered, influenced by Satan, by doctrines of demons, and there always will be that struggle. And so the, the characteristics that we see in the Antichrist are going to be really expanded, blown up large when he comes on the scene. But until that time, we can constantly see the same basic trends and emphases in various manifestations of kings and presidents and politicians and kingdoms all through the ages. Now, last time, before we get into the specifics of Daniel chapter 8 and the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, I wanted to look at just sort of front load your thinking with the three characteristics that come out in relationship to Antiochus Epiphanes. And these are then a type or a picture of what will be seen in the Antichrist. So I pointed out first one it was the that he <clears throat> comes on the scene, he's extremely popular, he trades on his own popularity, his own personal charisma, his, uh, he's able to sway the masses. And we see that today in ways that we haven't seen before. But it's always been there. It was that way in the 19th century. It was that way in the uh, in other 
centuries in other kingdoms. Hitler was that way. Uh, various presidents have been that way, good or bad. They have uh, swayed the masses by their own personal appeal. Second thing I saw, I pointed out was that we see with Antiochus Epiphanes that is more specific to him and is truly reflective of the character of the Antichrist is what we a term we would use in our modern context today, and that is a culture war. He was a master of the culture war. He recognized that as he was trying to um, consolidate his kingdom, the Seleucid Empire, uh, that he needed to bring everybody together and Hellenize. That means to make them all thinking like the Greeks thought and Hellenize the entire kingdom. He needed a homogenous kingdom. He wasn't a fan of multicultural diversity. He wanted everybody thinking the same way according to the same pagan system. And Antiochus was a product of a, of a Roman education, on his way to take power in, um, in in Syria, he stopped for a while in in uh, in Greece, and so he had absorbed many of the Greek ideas, and he was trying to implement those. And there was one group of people under his under his um, authority that just didn't want to go along with all of this paganization and the uh, multiplicity of gods and goddesses and everything that went with with Hellenization, and that was the Jews. So immediately they set themselves up as an as a thorn in the flesh for uh, Antiochus. So he's trying to. Uh, do everything he can to control the politics, to control the people, to appoint the, his people in place who will then appoint others who will move the Jews away from uh, a rigid orthodoxy, a rigid biblical orthodoxy. And the third thing that we see is that in his arrogance, he becomes so anti-God that he thinks of himself as a God. And so he he sees himself as being able to do only those things that God can do, only those things that uh, that a deity can do. He can solve everybody's problem. He sets himself up as one to be to be worshipped. He takes the name uh, Epiphanes, which means the manifest God or the manifest deity. And and those who uh, didn't like him called him Epimenes, which meant the crazy one, the madman. And so they would just uh, sort of sneer at him behind his uh, behind his back. So nothing different from that time in history to uh, this time in, in history. Now, last time I wanted to orient us to to some maps. That's always important. Every time I do this, people always come up and say, "Well, I really didn't realize where everything was and needed a little uh, or- more orientation to geography." This is the Mediterranean Sea here, up here towards the upper left. Let me get a, how do I get my, or do I get my pointer over there? Does it go? I can't get it over there. I've had it over there before. What is, I guess it just won't, there we go. It was there for a moment. Oh, oh well, it'll show up eventually, I'm sure. 
Oh, well. Well, anyway, you can see in the upper left, you see where Greece is. Macedonia is to the north of Greece. This is up in the area today, uh, just below the Balkans. You have Serbia, Bulgaria, up to the north of Macedonia. Then it swings around to the to the east, and you have a little area there of uh, sticking out from Turkey, the area that's around the uh, uh, Bosphorus there. You have the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, which are the two straits that go from the Aegean up through Istanbul up into the Black Sea. Then you have Turkey. Uh, south of Turkey, you move into the area of Syria. Now, these are the battlefields of the ancient world, the Greeks against the Persians. Later on, you have the battlefields of some of the Greeks under, the, under Lysimachus and Cassandra, who control Macedonia, Greece, and uh, western Turkey, fighting, um, fighting the uh, Seleucids, who control the uh, eastern part of Turkey and Syria uh, over towards uh, what is modern Iraq, and then they in turn are fighting the Ptolemies down in Egypt. And so we go to the next slide. We see the ancient world here. We see the extent of the Persian Empire, which was completely conquered by uh, by the Greeks under Alexandria. And then just as Alexander... Uh, Alexander the Great conquered everything. He uh, was in a drunken orgy, 33 years old, and he uh, dies. And his kingdom is split up then into these four groups. Ptolemy takes over Egypt, Israel, that area. Uh, Seleucus has Syria and Babylon. Cassander controls Macedonia and Greece, and Lysimachus controls Thrace and Turkey. But the only ones that relate to biblical prophecy really are Ptolemy and Seleucus. So we read in verse 23 that in the latter period of their rule, their rule referring to the Greek rule, when the transgressors have run their course, that is those who have, uh, that's an allusion to the, uh, to the Greeks, a king will arise who's insolent and skilled and intrigued. Now this is going to refer to uh, Antiochus Epiphany. So we see that there's a historical fulfillment of this, that verse 23 isn't looking to a future fulfillment. It was fulfilled historically during the period of the Seleucids. So we had the dates there. The Ptolemies controlled Jerusalem from 323 to 198, and then the Seleucids from 198 to the end of Antiochus uh, Epiphanes' uh, reign at his death, 167. And that's also the time of the Hasmonean Revolt, which we'll, uh, which we'll get into. Now, Here's some new information. I'll go back and forth between the next two slides. This slide presents the uh, <coughs> rulers in the Ptolemaic dynasty, and they're real easy to remember. If you can count to five, actually, if you can count to seven, you can remember the Ptolemies. They're Ptolemy one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. It's just trying to remember what each one did. And then you have, and I've lit, I have not gone into the earlier uh, Antiochene rulers and Seleucid rulers, because they, too, have the same basic names, Antiochus or Seleucus, and they just repeat those. But it's important to understand a few things, get a little background on on what they did. Now, if you go back, I want to look at this list. We have Ptolemy I, Soter, and he comes in to conquer, takes control of Jerusalem, but it's under his son, Ptolemy II, 
that his um, uh, the the head of the Alexandrian Library, who's buying up all of these books all over the ancient world, the, uh, the um, library at Alexandria was the greatest library of the ancient world. It was destroyed by a <clears throat> tidal wave or flood about a century, I think a century or so before Christ, and it's just amazing what was lost during that time. I mean, if we could just have all of those ancient books, he had at least 500,000 uh, volumes, scrolls, parchments, books from uh, all over the ancient world, going probably back uh, to the time uh, to the time of Noah. But it was this Demetrius who was in charge of the library there that wanted to have in Greek copies of the religious books of the Jews, and they were written in Hebrew, which they couldn't read. And so through the influence of the Jews that were in Alexandria as well as uh, Demetrius, they influenced Ptolemy to invite uh, six leading scholars from each of the 12 tribes of, of Judah, I mean of Israel, which would be 72 scholars, to come to uh, Alexandria and to translate the Pentateuch from Hebrew into Greek. And the legend is that these 70 uh, rabbis translated it in 70 days, and hence it was called the Septuagint from Sept, meaning 70, and so that was the Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. And that occurred during his time. Another thing that happened under his time is that he is the one um, excuse me, I'm getting a couple of these people confused here. Make sure I have the right one listed. He is the one that um, sent his right. It's um, it's his grandson, uh, grandson Philippator who sends his, no, actually it's Philadelphia, who sends his daughter, uh, Berenice, to marry the father of Antiochus III. And he's already married. So that creates just a little bit of a problem because of that particular marriage uh, to Antiochus. He was called Antiochus. The second was called Antiochus Theos. They all had such a high view of themselves. Theos, of course, means God. And he had to, Antiochus Theos had to divorce his wife, who was also his half-sister, and her name was uh, Laodice. And the idea was that any children born to Berenice and to... Uh, to Berenice and to uh, uh, Antiochus would then be an heir to both dynasties, and this would cement the relationship between the uh, Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Of course, it didn't quite work out that way. After a while, um, Antiochus, the uh, uh, Antiochus Theos, got a little bit tired. This was Antiochus II. He got a little bit tired of uh, Berenice, so he decided to go back to his former wife, uh, Laodice. Now that just gonna, that's just a, that's a recipe for a soap opera. She came back and she made sure that she would, uh, take her vengeance out, so she poisoned her husband, as well as, uh, Berenice, and they killed the children. 
So she executed her vengeance, and that ended the bonding of the relationship between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and things began to uh, go downhill from there. And when, um, by the time you get down to, if you notice, uh, Ptolemy the Fourth Philopater just doesn't live very long, and he uh, dies mysteriously, and then there's a couple of uh, a regency period that develops because Ptolemy the Fifth is only about six years old at the time that uh, Ptolemy the Fourth dies. So this becomes a uh, just a real complicated diplomatic effort. All through this time period, there are these battles between the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south, and they're fighting over territory of of where Israel is. And it's not until uh, 198 that that Ptolemy V is finally defeated by uh, Antiochus III. And it's not until you get into that family, Antiochus III, who's preceded by his his brother Seleucus III, that the Seleucids finally figure out how to fight wars and how to win. Now this is where things get really interesting in the in the ancient world is you have this finally this military power developing in Syria they've taken over most of what is uh, modern Turkey let me put a map up here for you they've taken over uh, most of what is modern Turkey there that's a better map see you have their uh, their empire over on the right they go up they control most of modern Turkey They've had some excursions into um, into the uh, into Greece. They're fighting to gain control of uh, Israel, and according on this map, they've gained control of Israel. And then the Ptolemaic Empire down below has lost territory to the Seleucids, so they're on the uh, on the ascendancy, and this forms the background to the reign of Antiochus. The fourth. Now, one thing that happens, and Antiochus the third uh, comes into power. There is something that's happening over here in the in the west. And if you look at the map, you see the that Rome is beginning to expand, and their expansion is indicated by the purple line. And just below that purple line, you see in northern uh, northern Africa, you see Carthage, and there's a faint green line uh, circling the area of Carthage, but Carthage was settled as a colony of the Phoenicians. Now, the Phoenicians came out of the area just to the north of northwest of Israel, the area of Tyre and Sidon, and they dominated the the, um, the sea lanes. You remember when we talked about Hiram of Tyre, when we were studying Solomon and how as Solomon expanded, the greatness of the uh, kingdom of Israel was such that, that Israel controlled all the land trade routes, and they were in an alliance with Hiram of Tyre, and they had such an incredible navy that the Phoenicians controlled the Mediterranean, they controlled the Red Sea, they controlled all of the trade routes on water. And so you couldn't move anything north, south, east, or west without having to pay tribute to either Solomon or Hiram. So they represented a solid uh, alliance, a solid block. Well, the Carthaginians were an outpost. They were a colony of the Phoenicians, as were those in uh, in the area of Spain, Tarsus. Um, was where Jonah was headed in uh, Tarshish. 
That was also a Phoenician uh, outpost, a Phoenician colony. And so as the Carthaginians, as Phoenicians, still dominated the Mediterranean, Rome was beginning to expand. Their navy was beginning to uh, reach out across the uh, Adriatic to Greece. They were going uh, down into the Mediterranean, and they were having these battles with the Carthaginians. And so they had two series of wars between Rome and Carthage called the Punic Wars, P-U-N-I-C. And there's the First Punic War and the Second Punic War, and the Second Punic War is the one where... Uh, one of the great Carthaginian generals named Hannibal is known because he decided to do a land envelopment of Rome and he took his army and in those days they had, they used elephants, elephants which were like their heavy, heavy tank, um, uh, heavy tanks that moved across and he, they took them, the Carthaginians under Hannibal came over the Alps and invaded Rome from the north. But they were defeated, and with that, the Second Punic War ended. Carthage ended its uh, brief period of ascendancy, and Rome began to expand. But what had happened during that Second Punic War is there's a guy over in, in uh, Macedonia uh, by the name of Philip the Sixth, and Philip is fearful of Rome. See how Rome's uh, purple lines there on the west are beginning to encroach upon Greece and upon Macedonia. And so he's afraid that Rome is going to come in and defeat him. So he had allied himself with Hannibal and with the Carthaginians. Well, when the Carthage was defeated, Rome's looking around and they see this little uh, pipsqueak of Philip over here in Macedonia and they say, well, you know, you were allied with our enemy, so now it's time to punish you. And they came in to defeat him. This is sort of like World War One. You have this mess, this, this spider's web of these alliances. And Philip, who's Greek, is allied to Antiochus, Antiochus III, who is also Greek. And so um, Antiochus III has been, is called upon by, by Philip to come to his aid. And so Antiochus III marches his army across Turkey there, across the uh, uh, Hellespont over to uh, Thrace and Macedonia, where he is resoundingly defeated both on land and sea by the Romans. And they impose upon him a treaty called the Treaty of Apamea, A-P-I-M-E-A. And the Treaty of Apamea is important because it was the ancient world's version of the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles, for those of you who know a little bit about 20th century history, was the treaty that ended uh, World War One, and the one word that uh, characterizes the, both of these treaties would be the word revenge, and they impose such egregious and harsh penalties upon those who were vanquished, upon the defeated, that it virtually uh, made another war uh, uh, necessary, because they the the vanquishers could not continue. Uh, could not continue to exist under the terrible penalties that were assessed by the uh, the victors, and so uh, Rome, which defeated 
had defeated um, Antiochus III on land at the Battle of Thermopylae in 191 and defeated his navy in the Aegean and then uh, destroyed his army at the Battle of Magnesia, which was one of the uh, great battles of the ancient world where you really saw a major uh, power swing go from the uh, east to the west. Uh, Rome becomes the dominant uh, dominant um, power. Now, these are the conditions that they assessed on Antiochus III, and you can't, we can't understand what's going to happen in these prophecies and with Israel without realizing this background. First of all, Antiochus III had to surrender all of his territory in Asia Minor, and that was some of his wealthiest territory. Remember, the kingdom of Lydia was one of the kingdoms in uh, Turkey, and this was the uh, famed kingdom of uh, Creasus, who was one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. So there were all sorts of natural uh, resources and valuable metals, gold and silver, that were uh, mined in that area. And so it provided a, tr- because of the trade through that area, it pr- provided a tremendous source of income for the Seleucid Empire. Second, there's always a uh, restriction on on armament, and there's always a reduction of forces in any kind of defeat. And so Antiochus had to surrender all of his elephants. That's like coming along and saying you have to give up all of your uh, armored divisions. He had to give up all of his elef- elephants. And third, he had to give up all of the ships of his fleet. So this effectively cut his ability to wage war, to conquer uh, any territory and to defend himself in the future against the Romans. It cut all of his communications lines and supply lines and also his ability to protect trade uh, on the Mediterranean. A fourth thing, he had to agree that he would no longer recruit troops for his, for his army or navy from Asia Minor, Greece, or the Aegean area. And fifth, he had to pay 52,000 talents of gold a year to the Romans. That's the equivalent today of several billion dollars in, in trade. And it had to be paid in 12 annual, uh, annual installments. So he had to pay 52,000 talents total in 12 annual installments. And in order to make sure he did this, he had to give up a hostage that would be taken to Rome in order to secure the uh, the tribute. And so his son, Antiochus IV, was then taken to Rome, and so Antiochus IV is raised in Rome. That's why he is there, and he is educated in Rome, and he comes to think like a Roman. So he has he is, to some degree, multicultural in his thinking. He thinks like a Roman. He understands their their system of thought. He's Later, he will go to Greece. Uh, he's a product of a Greek culture, so he will understand uh, Greek thinking. And then he will uh, take over the empire. Now, what happens is that Antiochus III has to start raising this money. So how do you raise this money? Well, you start 
conquering territory in the direction you can go. So which way is that? Well, he can go to the north, so he begins to uh, attack and, and expand his kingdom north towards uh, Armenia. He goes to the east, so he begins to expand his territory over the ancient kingdom of Babylon and Persia, and he begins to expand south. And what he does is he's going to, he needs money. Now, where do you keep money? You keep money in your treasury. And where was the treasury in the ancient world? Treasury was in the temples. So when you're raiding the banks, you're raiding the temples. Now, there's nothing that really irritates people quite as much as starting to uh, tear down their temples, steal from their gods, and this really irritates a lot of people. So Antiochus ended up becoming assassinated, and so his son, Seleucus III, becomes the, or Seleucus IV, rather, Seleucus III, who is known as Soter the Deliverer, Seleucus III becomes the, um, let me see, I'm confused here looking at my notes. Antiochus III is assassinated, and his son, Seleucus IV, the older brother, Seleucus IV is the older brother of Antiochus IV, and Seleucus IV uh, becomes the king. But he doesn't last but uh, 12 years. And then he dies. And so now it's the kingdom is going to shift to Antiochus. He's still in Rome. So Seleucus' son, Demetrius, is going to be sent to Rome to take his place. And Antiochus is going to be brought back uh, to Syria in order to take over the kingdom. So he comes back in 175, and he will have approximately an 11-year reign. So he will be on the throne in 175, to 164. Now, those dates are important. In 175, he takes over. About 171, he starts to really oppress the Jews. And then in 167, there will be a revolt against him uh, led by uh, the known as the Maccabean Revolt and leads to the, uh, Hasmonean, uh, the Hasmonean Kingdom. Now, as... Things develop as Antiochus uh, comes to the throne. He's faced with the same problem that his father had, and that is that he has to pay off this money, this tribute to the Romans, and so he has to uh, take over. He has to continue to expand the kingdom in order to raise more and more money. And so he looks down and hears about all of this uh, uh, wealth down in Israel, that it's a beautiful area. The Egyptians have money, and so he wants to head down to Egypt to conquer uh, the Ptolemies, expand his territory through uh, Israel, and to uh, so he can raise the taxes on that area in order to uh, pay off this uh, pay off this tribute. Now, as he does this, as he expands the empire, he decides the best way to do that is through this whole process of Hellenization. And so as he conquers these territories, he is going to impose upon everyone this culture that comes out of the Greek culture, the Greek gods. Everything has to become... um, has to become Hellenized 
And, of course, this is what's going to be the major problem, the major conflict when it comes to, uh, comes to Israel. So let's see how this fits in with what we see in the Scriptures. In Daniel 8, 9, we read, out of one of them, that is, out of one of those four horns, this would be out of the Seleucus horn, came forth a rather small horn. See, he's small. He's in, in, when you look at all of history, this guy doesn't stack up with any of the great rulers or great kings, but he is the one who most represents the character qualities and the attributes of the Antichrist. And one of those, of course, is going to be what he does historically when he uh, desecrates the temple, committing the abomination of desolation. So he's a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, that is, towards Egypt, toward the east, towards Persia, and toward the beautiful land. Land isn't actually there. It's just towards the beautiful, which was a, um, a term that was used to describe Israel. And then verse 10 says, And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Now, this is a rather obscure verse and difficult to understand exactly what is going on in this verse. In order to uh, properly interpret it, what you need to do is to go through a word study in the Old Testament, primarily, New Testament might play into it, but usually doesn't if you're dealing with an Old Testament passage. You need to deal with these phrases, the host of heaven and stars, in order to find out how they are used in the Old Testament because they are used together. Though It's not just the host. It is the host of heaven. So you have to deal with the phrase, not simply uh, the words that are found there. And they are used in parallel. Now, we've studied and done word studies on stars before. We did this earlier in the study of Revelation when we dealt with the stars and the angels of the churches of the uh, seven churches in Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, that the seven stars of the uh, lampstand that uh, Jesus holds in Revelation 1, we're told the seven stars are the seven angels. And so there's a clear identification in that passage of stars to angels. We see this in other passages in the Old Testament, such as in Job uh, 47, that uh, all of the sons of God, which are the angels, are referred to in other uh, earlier parts of that passage in uh, 47.4, the morning stars sang together uh, before God laid the foundation, or when he laid the foundation of the earth. Uh, when uh, Lucifer falls in Isaiah 14.12 through 14, uh, Lucifer, one of the I wills is that he will raise himself above the stars of God. And again, that is a term, a place where stars clearly refers to angels. So you have uh, three uses of the word stars in the Old Testament. There's the use that refers to the physical uh, body out there in space somewhere, a physical star, physical light in the heavens as it does on the on the um, uh, on the fourth day when God creates the sun, moon, and the stars also. 
refers to the physical stars. The second use of stars as used as as a symbol is that the stars are used in Genesis 37, also in Revelation 12, as we've studied, and it refers to the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there are some who come along and say, see, because it's used there in uh, Genesis 37 in Joseph's dream where he sees the sun and the moon and and the 12 stars bow down to him. The sun is his father, uh, Jacob. The moon is his mother, and the 12 stars are his brothers, that this represents the, the people of Israel. And there are a number of people who take that particular view. What I find interesting is when they take that view, they'll also use as a support passages such as uh, God's promise to Abraham, where God said, your descendants will be like the stars in the heavens. But that's not calling his descendants stars. It's simply comparing their number to the number of the stars in heaven. So stars there is really used in its physical sense of these uh, lights out in the heavens. The third way, of course, that stars are used is to refer to angels. Now, which is it in this passage? And why would it be angels? I mean, you have to deal with all sorts of what-ifs in this passage. It grew up to the host of heaven. Well, host of heaven is parallel to stars. And when we have this phrase in the, in the Hebrew, the host of heaven, it's used nine, or it's used 18 times in the Old Testament, uh, one time in the New Testament. And it either refers to the literal stars in heaven as it does in uh, Deuteronomy 4.19, and Isaiah 34, 4, uh, it often uh, refers to them as the these stars in the heavens are worshipped by pagan religions. Passages such as Deuteronomy 17, 3 indicate that, numerous other passages. Or it's used to refer to the entire angelic host, as in 1 Kings 22, 19, 2 Chronicles 18, 18, and Isaiah 24:21. So it either refers to the literal stars again or it refers to angels. Now in Daniel 4:35, a similar phrase is used in the Aramaic. So just hold your place there and turn back a page or two and you can see this particular verse, Daniel 4 verse 35. And this is in Nebuchadnezzar's praise of God at the end of the period when he's been uh, insane for seven years and living like an animal out in the fields. He then writes this psalm of praise to God of his sovereignty. Uh, At the end of verse 34, he says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. What's that? That's the angels. He does his will. He's in charge of the army, literally, and that would be the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Now, that word host is an archaic English word meaning uh, army. I remember... um, that's the same word we have when we talk about Lord Sabaoth. That's the Hebrew word, Sabah or Sabaoth. It's a Hebrew word, and so we sing in uh, Mighty Fortresses Our God, uh, references the Lord Sabaoth. That's not the Lord of the Sabbath. That's the Lord of the armies, literally. I remember one time uh, 
uh, Dan Ingram was taking a uh, uh, Hebrew class up at Capitol Seminary, and his Hebrew professor is a very well-known Hebrew scholar, and Dan translated that Lord of the Armies, and his Hebrew professor corrected him and said, it's got to be host, it can't be armies. If you look up in any English dictionary, that's why I teach guys when they do word studies, look the English word up and see what the English word means. If you look the English word up in a, the word host, it will say archaic for armies. Some, some Hebrew scholars are just living in their own ivory towers. They're good for some things grammatically, but keep them locked away. Um, so here in verse 35, in the same book of Daniel, you have this reference to him doing his will in the host of heaven. So there is a reference where it's used of angels. Now, when we look at the whole doctrine of the angelic conflict, we recognize that uh, the fallen angels that are referred to as demons who are actually lie behind, they are the influence behind the idols, the false gods of the Old Testament. In fact, in Deuteronomy, in several places, it indicates that the worship of the idols is parallel to worshiping the demons. We see the same kind of thing in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Chapter 7, where Paul's dealing with, with uh, doubtful things. And so uh, we have to be recognized that, that a lot of times in these passages, there is something going on that is not as obvious to us. And so there's a recognition that uh, the use of this phrase, host of heaven, and the stars must indicate and some sort of angelic involvement. Now, in looking at that, there are two ways that uh, this has been interpreted by evangelicals, by those who hold to an angelic view here. One is that somehow this indicates the uh, influence of demons in, in empowering Antiochus Epiphanes, giving him victory, and, of course, that would be true. There's nothing there that we'd say isn't true, but I don't think that's what this is saying because of some other things in the, con- in the context. It seems to indicate that he is setting himself up. He's trampling down these, these stars or these angels. And what this would indicate is he's elevating himself over the gods, over the pantheons of these other other nations and their religions, which is what was happening. It actually began with his father as he was raiding into and conquering these other uh, regions, these other countries, and raiding their temples. What is he doing? He is conquering their gods, their idols, destroying their idols, and setting himself up as the one who is who is more powerful than that. In his earlier commentary on Daniel, John Walver took this to refer that these terms refer to uh, Israel in some way, but towards the end of his life he published a uh, work called the Prophecy uh, Bible Handbook, and here he writes in, in that work with a product of his more mature thought. He said, according to history, Antiochus Epiphany set himself up as God, thus disregarding the star, starry host. In other words, disregarding the uh, demonic powers of heaven. 
He set himself up as the prince of the host, verse 11, in the sense of making himself great. The prince of the host, of course, would be a term referring to God. Uh, Antiochus uh, Walvard writes, took away and stopped the daily sacrifices offered by the Jews in the temple and desecrated their sanctuary. That's that religious element that was part of his uh, makeup that is most specifically the type of the Antichrist because the Antichrist in the tribulation period is going to set himself up up to be worshipped as God. So he, uh, Walvard writes, I'll pick it up again, Antiochus took away and stopped the daily sacrifices offered by the Jews in the temple and desecrated their sanctuary, turning it into a pagan temple. He fulfilled the requirements of throwing truth to the ground in verse 12, a history is recorded that Antiochus, by taking the name Epiphanes, which means glorious one or manifest one, there's various ways in which that's translated, assumed that he was God, much as the little horn of Daniel 7 will do in the future tribulation. His role is similar to the future role of the coming world uh, dictator. Now, let's go back to look at the text. We've looked at um, verses 8 and 9, uh, 8 through 10, I believe. Let's look at, let me make sure I got to 10. 10 stated, And grew up at the host of heaven, cast down some, uh, some of the hosts, some of the stars to the ground, trampled them. Uh, verse 11, He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. That would be God. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. This is what... Uh, Antiochus removed, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, what happened in Antiochus's life is that as he was raiding down into the south and raiding down into, into Egypt, he was finally met by his opponent, uh, one of the, um, I think it was uh, uh, Ptolemy VI, who up to that point really hadn't shown much military uh, ability and really hadn't defended uh, his empire very much. But now that uh, Antiochus has amassed his great army, a, a tremendous number of elephants and foot soldiers and archers, and has conqu- conquered the area of Israel, he's moving down into Egypt proper. And so the, the Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy, I think it was Ptolemy the Sixth decides that he is going to finally get his army together and he's going to stop Antiochus. So what does he do? What would you do? You're out there all by yourself. Who are you going to get as your big brother to really stop this guy? You're going to call Rome. And so this is when you start getting this alliance between Egypt and Rome that eventually culminates in Cleopatra and Caesar and Mark Antony and all that. It all goes back to the same time period. And so he calls upon Rome to bring in, uh, to come in and to stop, and to stop Antiochus. And so Rome sends as sort of their secretary of state, one of their uh, top individuals who was um, one of, who had actually been a childhood friend of Antiochus. And so Antiochus, in his arrogance, thinks that uh, now that he has conquered uh, 
the Egyptian army in the past. He is going to and put them on the run. He's going to easily sway Rome to his side because this uh, negotiator that Rome has sent is one that is going to uh, be on his side. Well, what this guy did was he comes in and he pulls out a sword and he, after he's negotiated with uh, Antiochus trying to uh, uh, get him to back off, Antiochus is blustering and he's not going to back off. He wants to conquer Egypt. This guy takes out a sword and draws a circle around Antiochus' feet and he says, until you sign uh, the peace treaty, uh, you can't step out of that circle or I'll kill you. So that ends that, and Antiochus has had his uh, reputation now sullied, and he's, his arrogance has been embarrassed, and so he has to take it out on somebody. So what, is he, what do you think he's going to do? Well, he turns around, he marches his army back into Israel, and he takes it out on the Jews, and he starts killing Jews left and right. He goes in, and this is when he desecrates the temple, when he takes a pig into the altar and sacrifices a pig on the altar, which is an unclean animal, and splatters the pig's blood all over the temple. And he then begins to issue uh, a number of uh, laws in order to stop the worship of the Jewish God. And he, the first thing he does is he suspends all temple ritual. There cannot be any more uh, temple worship or temple ritual. Second, all copies of the scripture must be burned. You can just see why this element of his uh, reign is, is a type of the Antichrist. All copies of the scriptures must be burned, and anyone caught with reading the scriptures or with copies of the scriptures in their possession, it was an immediate death sentence. They were to be executed on the spot. What would you do under those conditions? Uh, third thing that he uh, instigated was that no special days would be observed, including the Sabbath. So if anyone was caught observing the Sabbath, they would be executed immediately. All dietary laws were abolished. That was the fourth thing. Uh, the fifth thing, any woman caught circumcising their male child would be executed, mother and child on the spot. And sixth, he went into the temple, dedicated the temple to Zeus, and sacrificed a pig to Zeus. He ordered the Jews to begin worshiping uh, Baal Shamaim, who's Baal of the Shamaim, the God of uh, the Lord of the Heavens. And so uh, this began to be the um, generate a tremendous reaction to Antiochus Epiphanes. You can read about this and uh, partially in 1 Maccabees uh, chapter 1. In fact, if I can get the computer to do it. Well, I didn't get the computer to do it. I should have it right here. Okay. 1 Maccabees 1. Well, that's not going to work real well. Let me move it over here. Well, see, I just love technology when it works. But when it doesn't work, it's not very helpful. Okay. 
I know most of you have probably not read uh, Maccabees lately in your devotions, so we'll see a little bit of it here. This is It's good history, and I've highlighted some of the verses that uh, we should pay attention to. The first verse talks about the what happens after the death of Alexander and his descendants. In verse 2 states that they made many wars and won many strongholds, slew the kings of the earth. Uh, I believe this is talking, still talking about um, Alexander. He goes to the ends of the earth and makes spoils of many nations. In verse 7 reads, so Alexander reigned 12 years and then died, and then it goes on to describe all of the battles, and uh, in a couple of verses just summarizes the conflict. And then verse 10 states, and there came out of them a wicked root, Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes, the son of Antiochus the king, who had been a hostage at Rome. Uh, actually, it was he was the son of uh, uh yeah, that's right. He's the son of Antiochus III, and it was Antiochus Epiphanes who had been a hostage of Rome. He reigned 137 years after the uh, beginning of the kingdom of the Greeks. Now, if we skip down, describes everything that he did in... Uh, I'm having a great time with this. Uh, what's the deal here? Well, there. That uh, describes the actions of Antiochus in verse 20. Uh, after Antiochus had smitten Egypt, he returned again in 140, the 143rd year, went up against Israel and entered proudly into the sanctuary, verse 21, took away the golden altar and the candlestick of light and all the vessels thereof, and the table of the showbread, the pouring vessels, the vials, the censers of gold, the veil, the crown, the golden ornaments uh, were before the temple, all which, uh, all which he pulled off. He took also the silver and the gold and the precious vessels. Also he took the hidden treasures which he found. When he had taken all away, he went into his own land, having made a great massacre and spoken very proudly. So all of this fits the uh, prophecy. Remember, Daniel writes about this 200 years before it actually uh, actually took place. Uh, verse 25, Therefore there was great mourning in Israel in every place where they were, so the princes and elders mourned, the virgins and young men were made feeble, and the beauty of women uh, was changed. Every bridegroom took up lamentation, and she that sat in the marriage chamber was in heaviness. So it goes on to describe all of the problems that ensued leading up to the fact that God is going to bring uh, judgment upon them. Uh, talks about uh, the Hellenization then is described in the verses after 34. They put there in a sinful nation. Wicked men fortified themselves uh, therein. And uh, they stored it, this is talking about the temple, they stored it also with armor and victuals. And when they'd gathered together the spoils of Jerusalem, they laid them up there. And so they became a uh, sore snare. Now, rather than going on with that, we're running out of time. And I want to just hit one other passage in, uh, uh, in the text. 
As we read down here, we read in verse 12, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn, that is Antiochus, to oppose the daily sacrifices and, let me see, I do have a slide on that, to oppose the, uh, the regular sacrifices and to fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. What is this transgression? The transgression is the Jews that were uh, succumbing to the Hellenization. They were being assimilated into the pagan way of thinking. Now, this had happened before in Israel. It happened in the uh, ancient world. It happened in, 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 before they went into Egypt when the uh, brothers of Joseph were uh, intermarrying with the Canaanites. What did God do? He, took, he disciplined them. He brought the famine, and the whole family had to move down to Egypt in order to protect them. The same thing happened with each of the disciplines of the destruction of the northern kingdom in, in uh, 722, the destruction of the uh, southern kingdom in 586. All of these were designed to discipline Israel and then to protect them. And so Antiochus is a discipline on Israel in order to force them to retrench and to uh, isolate themselves from the Gentiles around them in order to protect their identity. And this is exactly what happens as a result of Antiochus Epiphanes. In 164, a priest by the name of Mattathias will lead a revolt against the Seleucids. He's a priest in the village of Modin. And when uh, Antiochus's men came to town to set up an altar and demand that everybody sacrifice to Zeus, he resisted. And when a one Jew came out to sacrifice, uh, Mattathias killed uh, killed him, and then killed the Syrian uh, leader who had come into the town to set up the altar. And then that instigated a revolution against uh, the Seleucids. Uh, he had two sons, Mattathias had two sons, Simon and Judas, who was called the Hammer or the Maccabee. And so that is why it became known as the Maccabean, uh, Maccabean Revolt. Now, this is, shows that the, all of this prophecy is literally fulfilled, and it is uh, a picture of the end. Now, I want to close on one verse, which is an important verse, and that's verse 17. Verse 17, Gabriel is interpreting to Daniel, and that's um, uh, the he. And Daniel says, so he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, it's this whole vision is fulfilled prophetically in the past. So we're not talking about double fulfillment. Sometimes in uh, prophecy uh, writings, you'll hear people talk about dual fulfillment. It, it, there's only one fulfillment. That happened historically, but it pertains to the end in that it is a type or a shadow of what will happen in the end. It's not a prophecy related to the Antichrist. The Antichrist isn't coming out of Syria. It is a picture of what the Antichrist will be like. He is typified in Antiochus 
epiphanies. Okay, next time we'll wrap up chapter 8, and then we'll get into chapter 11, which is pretty simple because it's a lot of the same history, but in a little more detail. So we'll just go through that pretty quick, and then we'll be in a position to wrap up the Old Testament uh, teaching on the Antichrist. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can uh, look back at your word and see such precision in prophecy, precision in fulfillment, and then it it also uh, gives us an idea of the horrors that will come in the future under the Antichrist during the time of his his, uh, rule and reign during the tribulation period. Uh, Father, we pray that our, this such a study will open our eyes to understand the trends of the cosmic system and the way in which the world operates and that too often worldly leaders operate, that we might not put our hopes on men and hopes on flesh, but that our hope will be upon you and upon your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.